Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, April the 21st, 2023, end of another week. Um, but time perhaps doesn't have much meaning when it comes to the First World War. It seems to be the war that's eternal. Um, last month, we did a show with the young English novelist Alice Wynne has a new book out on the First World War, a gay love story in many ways called In Memorial, uh, In Memoriam, which uh, is doing very well. And in the show, we asked uh, whether World War One had ended yet? It's an interesting question, um, which Alice suggested it hadn't. Today, we're dealing with, in a guess, in a way, another World War I uh, book and another uh, gay romance, uh, at least according to the New York Times' review. Alexander Himon um, set a gay love story amid, uh, amid the Great War. Uh, he's a very distinguished novelist, and this new book is getting all the acclaim that it deserves. Alexander is joining us from Princeton, New Jersey, where he teaches uh, in his day job. Uh, Alexander, I'm not sure whether you would be particularly thrilled with that title of your book, A Gay Love Story Amid the Great War. Is that a good description, do you think? Um, I well, a gay as an identity wasn't quite available at the time, but, you know, it works for us now. And there's a story of the book extends beyond the Great War. That is only the first two chapters are um, related to World War One, And then, you know, there are other wars that my characters had to contend with. So it's not about the Great War as such. The Great War is just one of the wars. But is it a, a war about the loss of innocence in a way? I mean, your book begins in 1914 in Sarajevo, where uh, the assassination, of course, took place, which triggered the war. Uh, the book is divided, I mean, it's divided in lots of different ways, but it's divided between this imaginary period before the war, a belief in progress, of Vienna, of peace, and then this long war, as you say, the, the First World War is only the first of many wars that, uh, that, that make up your story. Well, I wouldn't call that period before World War I as you know, an era of innocence. Um, it was more an imperial period in that, that much of the world was controlled and governed by four major empires, maybe even five if you take the German um, imperial ambition seriously before uh, World War I. So, what happened in 1914, what that is started happening in 1914 and ended with a, um, after the end of the World War One, of World War One, three of those empires uh, crashed and vanished without a trace. And it wasn't just the territorial organization of the empires, but the whole mode of government. You know, the divine right of kings, the dynasties, and all that. And the fourth empire, the British Empire, you know, just ended in Brexit, if you wish. Um, so some people, some historians, with, with good reason, um, believe and um, argue that the 20th century started uh, with World War One and ended with 9-11. So it is just a different stage of 
history, world history. And it's not that, you know, we were innocent or people were innocent and then World War I screwed it all up. But your book, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, certainly the, the major character in the book um, is deeply nostalgic for a world before World War I and for a, a Sarajevo before World War I. Is that fair? Yes, it is. And um, the reason for that, um, from his point of view, um, until 1878, Sarajevo was part of the, uh, the Ottoman Empire. And then after the uh, Berlin Congress, Bosnia was occupied um, by the Austro-Hungarian Empire, presumably temporarily. Of course, it wasn't so. And so it was annexed to the empire in 1908. So for about 40 years, Bosnia was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which meant it had access to, I don't know, you know, a relatively modern world of Vienna and other um, metropolitan areas in, in, the, in the empire, which allowed my main character, Rafael Pinto, to go to university in Vienna. And Vienna, um, you know, uh, at the turn of the centuries, was a very lively place in many ways, right, with music and art and everything else. And when he comes back to say, well, he longs for that time. As, as a homosexual man, he had access to certain pleasures that were not so readily available in Sarajevo, which was, you know, the far province of the empire, or both of the empires, both of the Ottoman Empire and uh, um, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Sarajevo and Bosnia had the misfortune to be on the fringes of empires. Tell me a little bit more about this man, Rafael Pinto. Uh, he's a remarkable character, as you say. He trained as a pharmacist in Vienna. Uh, he was brought up in Sarajevo. He was of Sephardic Jewish origins. Uh, what is so remarkable about him? It was interesting. In the, um, in the uh, Wall I think it was the, um, uh, the Washington Post uh, review, um, they suggest that uh, your book was about ordinary people in the midst of extraordinary times. But there doesn't seem to be anything ordinary about Rafael Pinto, is there? Well, in the final counting, everyone is extraordinary if they're alive in this world or any world. Um, and he was ordinary in that he had no access to power or had no you know, uh, way to control the outcomes in his life. Hence, he ended up in the trenches in World War I. What is extraordinary about him, relatively speaking, is that he is a... Uh, a Sephardic Jew, which among other things means that he's multilingual, so that his uh, native language um, was Ladino, um, the Spanish, Castilian Spanish that the exiled Sephardic Jews or Sephardic people um, brought along with them. Uh, in Sarajevo, it's called Spanish, uh, it's a variation of you know, Spanish. Um, and then he also studied in Vienna. He speaks German and he speaks the, the, the local language, Bosnian, obviously, because he was born and raised there. So his uh, mind is multilingual and operates on several levels. And that was the interesting aspect of his character to me. I mean, I created it so that I can examine how such a consciousness would work. He's also, um, he's, his poetic ambitions is kind of compulsively reflective and uh, always engaged with his own thoughts. And he is, uh, he owns his desires. Uh, one of the things that I didn't want to 
uh, insist on too much is any kind of shame. He knows who he is. He, he doesn't have doubts about, you know, getting married and yeah, I mean, he, 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 it's interesting about him because he's divided. On the one hand, as you suggest, he makes his own sexual history. One of the most memorable scenes in a very memorable book was just before the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand in Sarajevo. Pinto chooses to kiss an Austrian officer. Um, and he makes his own sexual history throughout the book. And yet at the same time, you suggest that there's something ordinary about him because He's a victim of history. He's literally swept eastward. The, the narrative of the book is the story of Pinto going from Sarajevo to the war in Serbia to further east on the Eastern Front to Central Asia and the wars after the Bolshevik, Republic, uh, the Bolshevik Revolution and then to Shanghai. Um, so there's something, I don't know if it's unusual, but ambivalent about him. On the one hand, he makes his own history, and on the other hand, he's very much a victim of history. Well, history, you know, it, it's a deluge. It's not an organized um, set of events that uh, is pursuing, you know, a particular plan. He moves through the, the, the waves, the tsunami waves of history. At no point does he and anyone in the book really um, uh, exist or live or pass through anything that we would, um, call a nation state or a state or a functioning society, anything mm. like that. And so um, it, because of that, his agency is limited because it is not enhanced or protected by some kind of you know, societal organization. He's not a citizen of anything. After the, the very beginning of the first chapter, he's no longer a citizen of any organized society right, he has no passport which which you want to align and for us moderns we simply take it for granted you got a passport you can pick it out and choose to go wherever you like but you remind us that that wasn't true for most of history correct and so he doesn't really he's not let in or let out of any of the countries he passes through territories that are fluid and in you know in contention or there is various forces armed and violent forces are in contention for those territories and so that does things to, um, I, I assumed and wrote a book about it, to person's consciousness and the sense of um, being in the world in a particular way. So the only thing that he can hang on to is his love for Osman, his uh, fellow Bosnian and fellow soldier. The two of them are the world to each other, effectively. The rest of the world around them is constantly falling apart and being reconstituted is another violent emanation. I, 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 let me add, and maybe I'm wrong, it's, it's your book, not mine, but he hangs on to a couple of other things, the memory of Sarajevo, but also, as you mentioned earlier, language. He has his own personal language that he develops with his, I don't know if it's his daughter or his, his daughter that he inherited from Osman, Osman's real daughter. Um, language is something that obviously for you as a very distinguished writer is central to your existence. The book has divided critics on the language front. Some people have said, well, I, I love the book, but one of the problems is I didn't understand all the language. It wasn't always, um, it wasn't always, uh, it wasn't always translated. On the other hand, uh, the Washington Post Review, which was particularly good, said that, uh, that other languages falls into the fact that you're also the co-author of the screenplay for The Matrix Resurrection. So for you, you almost chose to make um, Pinto's personal language, the thing that he quite literally carried with him, 
slightly you, uh, elliptical or uh, inaccessible to the reader. Was there any reason for that? You didn't translate all these foreign words? Well, there's some of the translations embedded, some of them are um, clear from the context. Some of them are not to be translated at all um, because we cannot completely read someone else's mind. And some of them accrue meaning within the context of the book. For example, there's a recurring phrase, la gran escuridad, which was yeah. never translated as such, but I would hope that its symbolic value becomes apparent by, by the end of the book. I wanted Pinto to have a multilingual consciousness. And, you know, if, uh, and I'm multilingual and live and know a lot of multilingual people, not only in my family, but, you know, in the world. And it is my belief and experience that a multilingual mind is a you know multidimensional mind. And for people who are monolingual, um, it's some some parts of such minds are not entirely comprehensible. In, in a two-dimensional system of representation, a multidimensional object can only be represented in two dimensions. And people or creatures who live in a two-dimensional system simply do not see and cannot perceive those other dimensions. I took that risk very aware of it, and I wanted to do it. I wanted to construct a multilingual consciousness where um, languages flow in, in and out of each other. And I wanted that experience not to be reduced to a single language. I mean, it was relatively easy to translate that. And, you know, the book is 102,000 words, I believe. I would, you know, place a large, I would bet a large amount of money that fewer than a thousand words would be foreign. And then at least half of them are translated within the text. Well, I have so, to admit, as a reader, I love the book. For me, the fact that I didn't understand all the words was good. There was a certain poetry yeah. to it, which didn't really bother me. I'm not sure we need to understand quite literally the translation of every word. You mentioned that you're multilingual. You came to uh, the United States, I think, in the, the 90s, um, not knowing a great deal of English, and you've established yourself as one of the most distinguished writers in English. You've often been compared to Nabokov in that context. Um, obviously, that's, that's a, uh, I'm sure you're not unhappy with that. But <laughs> in terms of not writing, in your first or even second or third language, does that bring out, in your view, this central European multilingual sensibility to your work? I would hope so. And one of the things that interested me and that is in the book and I pursued in the book is the idea that, you know, that um, of macaronic language. And this yeah. macaronic language is, you know, for instance, immigrants commonly do this in my family elsewhere. Two languages are combined in the same sentence or in the same discourse because it's too inefficient to look for the exact word in one or the other language. And so I would think that historically, just about any language that was not geographically isolated was at some point or another macaronic or has macaronic elements. And if you look through English, you know, um, it contains French words because Normans invaded the island back in whatever, 12th century, right? And then for a little while, there was a macaronic exchange between the natives and the invaders. And this happens in empires, uh, including, you know, the Austrian Empire, where people migrate from one end of the empire to another, bring their own language. My family on my father's side emigrated from what is today Ukraine within the borders of the Austrian Empire. And the language they spoke at home, I thought was Ukrainian. 
But once I looked into that deeper, it contained Polish and native words and Russian words and who knows what. I can't even tell them apart. And so for the experience of, I would think, most of the people in the world, their language is complex, ever-evolving, and, and it's substantially macaronic. And so I wanted Pinto to live in a macaronic world. And it comes the word macaronic comes from macaroni. Yeah, it's a great pasta, word. Because it's held, you know, that's uh, individual pieces of the pasta held together, like a, a, a handful of macaroni. And when you drop it, it all falls apart. And so to me, that was... Um, that was something that I wanted to do. In the, uh, by the end of the book, Pinto and Rahela, his you know, uh, adopted daughter, they have their own language. It contains the languages that he brought along and the languages they picked up along the way. And only two of them, the two of them are speaking it, as it were. And I could not... Yeah, them. I love that idea. Well, uh, is it fair, uh, though, um, Alexander, to call Rahela Pinto's adopted daughter? Well, I mean, it was, she was for him. She, it, but she, not for her. <laughs> well, for her, she, she was, he was the only father she knew, other than the myth of Osman, who may or may Yeah, not and the myth of Osman is when, it, it, yeah. it, I mean, I'm not sure what you decided as the author, but for me, I'm still not convinced Osman, I mean, obviously all these characters are fictional, but I'm not sure even Osman was, a, uh, was, was, was real within your fiction. <laughs> was he? I mean, did he really exist, or was he just a figment of uh, of Pinto's yeah, imagination? Absolutely. Very uh, rich imagination, Central European imagination. I, he was bodily present for up to a point in the book, but then his presence continued. But even that bodily presence was it real? Yeah, I would say it's real. It's and, and what about towards the end of the book? He appears or appears to reappear. Is he real then? Well, <laughs> we have to discuss the nature of reality. If you see him, well, you're the book. You made the book. I need well, the answer, Alexander. He's not in the body. Let's put it that way. He's present for Pinto, but not in his body. You talk about the macaronic language uh, of Central Europe. Um, you have, you co-authored a piece in Politico uh, in December of 2021, talking about the crisis of democracy. You've written quite a lot about politics you're clearly a man on the left the progressive left do you think we need more macaronic language if we're to dig ourselves out of our current authoritarian hole yeah absolutely i think that you know the society and language and culture changes with the presence of uh, all different kinds of people and democracy is necessary uh, as a social organization to embrace all these beautiful amazing variations of humanity right and so the uh, the right wing forces, the fascists, they want to reduce the um, the identity of a society or country, right? To limit it to well, you know, to the hierarchies that had existed for a while, and now they're being questioned and and um, taken down, and they resist that violently up to a point. So you know, white supremacy is the opposite of a macaronic society. Yeah, and even though Pinto isn't political, and I mean. In a ways, he fights everyone. He fights the Bolsheviks. He fights the Habsburg bureaucracy, the Germans, the Russian thugs, the Cossacks, the Chinese communists and the Kuomintang. There is something political about him, isn't there? 
Well, he, his willingness to live as he is, is political unto itself. And this is how we all end up being political, right? And so people do not just wake up one day and, and decide that they believe this set of political ideas as opposed to that set of political ideas. Everyone is becomes political out of their body as they are, right? And so it's not that liberals are just a group that was, you know, bred in, in universities in the United States. I, I, my students come in as very young people and they are figuring out who they are and this act of figuring out means engaging with other people as they are and that in itself is a political act at some point they start organizing with other people who have a, a similar a political personal or identity um, direction if you wish and that that's how politics happen it's politics is not located in the parties it's located in the people and the parties are supposed to represent them and then they don't and then we have a crisis I wonder if though sometimes the book falls into its own stereotypes. Um, there's the perfidious Englishman, the ubiquitous perfidious Englishman, the adventurer who is always in the background. There's the dumb American, and there's the noble Central European, um, and they're the thuggish Cossacks. Is there any fairness to that critique? Well, I mean, I'm not going to critique my own book, but uh, well, you could. Uh, well, I could, I mean, but not publicly. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I think that Moser Ethering, is, I'm fascinated by spies. He was a great spy, and he's based on a great spy, Frederick Bailey, right? Yeah. Set of beliefs. He was very capable, and, I, and, and of course, is imperfect in that respect. Um, it is true also that, you know, when the American appears... He's not just an American. There's a whole subset of Westerners who in Shanghai treated the suffering of the Chinese as entertainment. Yeah, was, I mean, this guy could have stepped right out of a Graham Greene novel. Well, it was kind of, it's an oblique homage to Graham Greene. And so he ends up in Vietnam and hence, and the, hangs out at the Continental Hotel where, you know, the, um, I forgot the character in The Quiet Man, Graham Greene's novel. He hangs out there. Yeah, he is. Spies yeah. journalists were there. So. And he's got one finger in Vietnam and another in the Philippines and another in Hong Kong. He's clearly, but he's also kind of dim in his own way. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, to be fair, every the central consciousness of the book is Pintos. So even if, you know, um, I engage with fictional um uh, memoirs in historical books, right? That is, I made up most of those books, although they're closely resembling some of the books that I've read. So for Pinto hates Henry Krantz, right? And so... Oh, I, yeah. He's the only person in the whole book he hates, and he hasn't... He's not... And, and he hates him for the, the weird reason that he wasn't that bothered when his first wife was shot, which there's so many worse crimes in the book. Well, yeah, I, I think he hates him because he, Henry and his wife, they wanted to um, go and watch the Japanese kill the Chinese as, as a means of a party. But also, um, uh, and it was, you know, the, the hotels on the border between the international settlement and the Chinese part of Shanghai would have party cocktail parties on top of the hotel. So they would watch the fighting and the shelling where people were being killed you know, in, in scores um, while they were... But why would Pinto hate him so much more than murderous Cossacks? Well, he's, that, he's available at that time. It's right. also, or bloodthirsty Bolsheviks. Um, um, well, he hates them too, but they're not there. And also, they did not seduce his daughter. 
Should there is it? Did you were you tempted to put any political belief? Maybe make Osman at some points. I got the sense that maybe Osman was a Bolshevik, that he was certainly working for the Bolsheviks, and that there could have been a temptation to have somebody in the book who believed in revolution, who believed in a better world. Well, for that, you have to, well, not you, one would have to have uh, come up intellectually and emotionally in a kind of a stable society so that the horizon could be visible from a, from a territory intellectual otherwise that is defined they're transient wherever they are it is also and this was uh, always conceptually important to me from the very beginning um what they want mainly is to come go home that's their political belief they want to be home and the home is not available because right that it repeatedly destroys any possibility of home and also love i think is a a substantial political value in the belief that we must be loyal to people we love. I, as a Bosnian and many Bosnians, and I'm sure it happens all over the place all the time, there was a point in just about everyone's life where they had to choose, do you believe in an abstract idea of nation, the nation that is uh, you know, essentialist and um, is always the same essentially over thousands of years, or do you believe in loving your neighbor and your family? And, and that, that um, decision point is fundamentally political. Um, I chose the people I love. Right. For, uh, Forster has a line about that. I, w- I wonder if there's an element, Alexander, in this book of, and I'm sure you would get asked these sorts of dumb questions, so I apologize in advance. Is there an element of autobiography here? Uh, as you say, Pinto wants to be home. You left Sarajevo for one reason or other in the 90s. Does Alexander Himon always always want to be home? Is, uh, is, is Sarajevo where your heart is? I, I do want to spend a lot of time in Sarajevo, but it's complicated because I also have a family here, which I love, and they're not Bosnian or Sarajevo. And so I, ideally I would split time. I am because I'm a, a come from you know migratory people and, and displaced people over gener- generations. No one in my family dies in the country where they were born for some generations now. Um, I I have affinity, intellectual and emotional and personal, toward people who have a, a experience of displacement in their lives. And Pinto and Osman uh, uh, are those people. And so it's not that I, you know, encoded events from my life in the events into the events of the book. It is that they're my people, not only because they're Bosnian, but because they have to contend with the issues of home, identity, um, the availability of love in a, his, in a history that is perpetually violent and, and is always working on your displacement in one way or another. So they are, you know, famously... Um, Gustave Flaubert said, you know, Emma Bovary, that's me, c'est moi. And so I am them, but not because it's they, they follow the trajectory of my life or I follow the trajectory of their life. It's interesting. When you look up Sarajevo on Google, the internet, which of course knows everything, um, it suggests that uh, due to its long history of religious and cultural diversity, Sarajevo is sometimes called the Jerusalem of Europe or Jerusalem of the Balkans. Um, it doesn't mention the assassination or, of course, of the civil war. And when I was reading the book, I-, I thought a lot about Jerusalem 
And then Jerusalem pops up at the end of the book. Is that coincidental? Am I reading too much into it? No, but it's not because it's Sarajevo is um, the Jerusalem of, of, of the Balkans. There is an aspect of that multicultural presence, but also now there is segregation in the city. Um, it is that that's where Rahela ends. And so presumably for a Jewish person, Jerusalem, Israel is um, ancestral, ancestral home. And it's not for me to speak about that, but I wanted um, Rahela to end up there so as to question the whole idea of home. Is she at home? I don't know. Uh, but there was no other place for her to go when she returned to Sarajevo because of the Holocaust. The Pinto family and many other Jewish families were erased, and, and there were barely any traces of the Jewish present. There were Jews were present in Sarajevo for centuries, Sephardic Jews, and then the Ashkenazis who came with the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So it it, it closes the um, that cycle of homecoming, but it doesn't really. And the other thing is that, as, as I was saying earlier, this idea of um, the short 20th century that starts with the assassination and ends with 9-11. Um, the whole Jerusalem chapter takes place just a few days before 9-11. Yeah, so I mean, you could argue this 20th century took place between the two great events in Sarajevo history, the Yugoslav civil war and, and the assassination. But coming back to Jerusalem, I wonder whether it's also a warning, the promise of... Um, the promise which is never realized, Jerusalem is always the promise. And in your book, Sarajevo isn't realized. Pinto dies before he gets back. The Jews, of course, went back to Jerusalem. And in your final chapter, which ties all the book together, there are bombs going off in the background. You clearly um, note that Jerusalem is not a happy place. Is there a warning there about the realization of Jerusalem's, Alexander? Well, I think that, you know, there's this longing for home um, that people individually have. But if it's a collective ideological longing for home, that is, you know, um, that requires the creation of a nation state, which is impossible without violence and often genocide. And so Jerusalem has this mythological value, but also is part of Israel, who has a, you know, um, who has its own history, which is very, very complicated and exposes a lot of these questions. It requires us or um, us as humanity to think about it in, in various ways. And I, I, I can't remember ever um, considering the book ending in any other place than Jerusalem. Um, and it wasn't even sort of a considered set of decisions. Now, this is what I need, and this is let me look at the cities for quali that qualify. Jerusalem is kind of the beginning and an end. But does it really end in Jerusalem? It seems to end in Sarajevo. The, one of the key events is uh, in Jerusalem. You have this meeting with this Susan Sontag-like character, this idiot American um, writer. You clearly are not uh, particularly fond of some of these American quote-unquote intellectuals. Does it really end I, in Jerusalem? Doesn't I, it end in Sarajevo? Well, I, you know, that's a tricky question. It, that's not how I would perceive it, but I also I can see why that reading is available. Uh, it ends nowhere. It ends on the verge of, you know, um, hell, the Gehenna Valley. Um, and so it, it, what is unresolved is where the, the, the narrator, the, um, you know, the writer-like character 
at the end of it, where he might go after that is not clear, except maybe returning to the beginning of the book, so to speak, and start writing it and telling the story. Finally, the homeland, Alexander. In other words, the novel, it's the, the, home, the only available homeland, and this Nabokov believed that were his books. Finally, Alexander, let's go back to Sarajevo. Uh, I can probably tell I have my own affection for it. I lived in Sarajevo for a year in the early 80s before the Civil War, so I have very fond memories of it. So and, I've been, and I've been back quite often since. There's something, and maybe I'm orientalizing it, which we all do, of course, but th there is something, and, and, and you're from there, so for you it's by definition magical, but there is something special about it, isn't there? There's something there about Sarajevo which is very hard. Once it gets into your heart, you can't get it out of your heart. Is that fair? Yes, I would say so. And this is my experience. A lot of my friends and a lot of um, people who are not from Bosnia and Sarajevo who keep going there or even move there. Uh, you know, there's a whole um, a, a group of expats or from Western countries, English speaking, that I know there who have been there for years now. And they cannot, they are Sarajevan to themselves and to Sarajevans. And I can, I never wondered why they're here, right? It was always clear to me why they would be here. And while understanding why it is complicated to simply, you know, move to a place like Sarajevo. It is magical. It is complicated. It is beautiful. It is full of stories. The language is perpetually alive because of all that. The funniest people are live there, as far as I know. The most talented people and also the worst people live in Sarajevo and Bosnia. This is the, the tragedy, but also narratively productive, the narratively productive situation. There's very little middle. The best, and not as many as the worst, live there. And so you go that and it's highly intense experience of humanity that you can find in Sarajevo. So another way of describing Sarajevo is a place uh, in which uh, the world and all that it holds. It's Yes, it is, it is it's a high concentration of the world in Sarajevo at any given time.